think at this point, customers want reputable company. Reputation matters and compliance is a big part of that. We've seen a lot of chaos over the last year or two where some of the biggest crypto companies have either gone under or been subject to issues like this. We've got FTX. FTX you know, is in bankruptcy now. The head of that company is now facing significant jail time. Celsius went bankrupt. That owner's facing jail time. BlockFi went bankrupt. All these major crypto companies have gone under and customers have lost their money because everyone was doing shady things. Everyone was faking compliance or just ignoring laws. And people lost a lot of money because of that. Seeing this in the crypto industry, I do believe customers really want to make sure that they can use a company that they can rely on, that has a good reputation and has these compliance controls in place so that this kind of chaos (laughs) doesn't happen anymore. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Okay, well, Mr. Cryptocurrency is back, Matt Stankwitz, and we're back, Matt, for, I would say, one of the most significant criminal financial crime prosecutions in the history of the Justice Department. And this is, for all you crypto fans, the settlement agreements with Binance Holdings, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, and Changpeng Zhao, affectionately known as CZ, the founder and CEO, but for over $4 billion, and I said B, that's a big B, billion, with a variety of agencies in the Justice Department. So we're here to break this down with Matt. Matt, this has to be one of the biggest cases you've ever seen in your career. Yeah. Obviously, a massive case, huge implications for the cryptocurrency industry, but just in general, like we've put crypto aside, one of the biggest, like you mentioned, financial crimes in, that I remember, <laughs> especially in terms oh, of penalties oh, look, and everything involved. The only one I can think of, it's more off the top of my head, was $8 billion for the French bank Paribus relating to Sudanese violations of the sanctions. The biggest FCPA violation case was about 2.3 billion was Goldman Sachs in Malaysia. But this is unreal in terms of the size and scope. And you have OFAC, FinCEN, CFTC, and DOJ at the heart of it. You know, break it down for us. But also, you said right off the bat, there were huge implications here for the cryptocurrency industry. We want to make sure we cover that as well. But go ahead and sort of bring everybody up to speed in terms of what this enforcement action involved and how much money we're talking about. Yeah. So Binance is facing a total penalty of $4.3 billion, just over 4.3. About 2.5 billion of that is forfeiture and 1.8 billion is a criminal fine. That's going to be split up between all the different agencies here. Like you mentioned, it's DOJ, it's OFAC. OFAC resolved 1.6 million violations of a variety of sanctions programs. And their fine amounted to just under a billion dollars, about 900 some odd million dollars it was. 
FinCEN's consent order included a financial penalty of $3.4 billion. The CFTC had a separate penalty as well. As part of these agreements, the Binance main exchange is leaving the U.S. market. I believe they will maintain their Binance.us exchange, but the main exchange is now leaving the market. They will be required to have two compliance monitors, one through DOJ, which is a three-year monitorship, and one through FinCEN, which is a five-year monitorship. So they've got a lot of work ahead of them, plus all the related compliance improvements that are included in the agreement as well. You don't have any idea who the compliance monitors are yet, right? Not yet. From what I understand, it hasn't been decided yet. Part of the settlement was for each party to nominate two or three individuals that would serve as the monitor. So I think that process is still up in the air. On top of all that, too, CZ, that's what the industry knows him as. He's pretty vocal on Twitter. He's a big personality, and he was involved in the crypto industry from the beginning. So he's pretty well known by the industry. CZ himself is facing a $50 million penalty from the DOJ, although that'll be credited against his CFTC penalty, which is $150 million. And on top of all that, he's actually still facing a prison sentence. So this settlement agreement did not even wipe that away, and he may face prison for up to 18 months. So he pled guilty, and what did he plead guilty to? Failing to maintain like a AML program? Yeah, so Binance, the company, pled guilty to multiple violations of the Bank Secrecy Act, failure to register as a money transmitting business, and then all of those different sanctions violations under several different programs. CZ specifically pled guilty to similar violations, including a failure to maintain an effective AML program in violation of the Bank Secrecy Act. So they got a lot of money out of these, <laughs> out of these violations. But now... Binance did not get a deferred prosecution agreement. In other words, the company had to enter guilty pleas. That's correct. Mm. So they didn't get the benefit of a deferred prosecution agreement. And I wonder what implications does that have? What's going to happen to Binance's U.S. operations? As far as I understand, Binance.us, the U.S. exchange, will continue to operate. The main Binance exchange will no longer be allowed to operate in the U.S. That's really the centerpiece of a lot of these violations is that Binance was knowingly serving U.S. customers without complying with U.S. laws. At some point, they wanted to put on some kind of just some window dressing to suggest that they were complying by setting up this U.S. exchange, but they still maintained all their high value U.S. customers on their foreign exchange, which still never had any kind of compliance program to write all about. That's really the big issue here is that they driven from the top, completely ignored compliance throughout most of the life cycle of this company, which is really just fascinating, <laughs> right. I guess, as a compliance a conscious, practitioner. A conscious decision, conscious trade-off analysis, we're not going to have a compliance program. That was my biggest takeaway from reading all the allegations, is that this was driven tone at the top, from the very top from CZ and all of his senior leaders, that we are not going to comply. We believe it's bad for business, and so we're not going to do it, and we're going to do everything we can to circumvent those regulations, and if necessary, put on some kind of phony face that we are complying when in reality, any of these controls we have are virtually worthless. Just for a little background, so I mean, this case is so big that I imagine there's a lot of non-crypto people listening. Binance is a cryptocurrency exchange. One of its biggest competitors is Coinbase. Coinbase is the big US exchange that you guys may be familiar with, and 
what they do is allow users to trade their crypto or deposit fiat money, you know, US dollars or euros, whatever you may have, and buy and sell cryptocurrency. You buy Bitcoin on it, exchange that Bitcoin for Dogecoin, exchange it for whatever. And they were the biggest player in the market by far. Bigger than oh, yeah. Coinbase. Oh yeah. Much bigger than Coinbase because they had a very large global footprint. They were initially established in China and then moved their headquarters around the globe, ostensibly to avoid regulation, <laughs> to make it harder to catch them. They went to Malta, they went to the Caymans, they went to Singapore at one point, I believe, and kind of bounced around. I think now they're finally the main companies in the Caymans, but they serve the entire globe and the U.S. market, I believe, is only one third of their entire portfolio. While it's a big part, a significant part, it's only a piece of it. They were the biggest player, and everyone was kind of waiting for these dominoes to fall. We first discussed the CFTC's investigation back in 2021. This investigation has been going on for a little while. Interestingly, Binance, under the corporate enforcement policy, only got a 20% reduction in their final settlement award. Part of the grant for that reduction was because they did cooperate, but the DOJ noted that they weren't the best cooperators <laughs> and frequently delayed producing a lot of documents that had some of the worst material in it. No surprise, DOJ wasn't exactly happy with that. Right. I noted recordings of meetings between senior executives. That was sort of, yeah. they delayed the production of that. And I can imagine, so did Goldman Sachs and the FCPA thing. They delayed that till the very end. Yeah. Now, because it's probably incredibly incriminating. But here's my question to you. Is $4.3 billion, you know, a cost of doing business? Is it going to put any crimp in Binance's style? That's a great question, and I think that's an open question right now. I think, believe it or not, this is probably a good result for the cryptocurrency industry because it closes the door on this, and now the industry can move on without this hanging over its head. For Binance, I think it still ends up being a positive, like I said, believe it or not, just because they're still able to operate. And I don't think it's going to hurt them too much because as the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world, they probably were sitting on a war chest of funds. <laughs> so yeah, to some extent, I think this does end up being the cost of doing business because they grew so fast, so quickly with the cryptocurrency industry that their goal from the beginning was to prioritize growth over compliance. Again, another one of my biggest takeaways here is this was driven from the top. It's like, we don't want to do anything that will limit our customers, even if that means restricting sanctioned parties. We don't want that. We want them trading here because those are more customers and a sanctioned people have money too, right? <laughs> that was a conscious decision driven from the top. I mean, this came from CZ himself and all the senior leaders. You know what? To me, it says we advise all our clients and particularly in the crypto industry, we've dealt with them. When you do business in the US, you're subject to AML requirements, the Bank Secrecy Act, money transmitter laws, all of that. And you have to put in place a compliance program. And it's rare to see companies, although we had a situation a couple of years ago, the Southern District of New York, where they prosecuted individuals for just blatantly ignoring that requirement. In other words, they know they're getting U.S. customers, they're soliciting U.S. customers, and they know they're not complying with the law. And I thought in the crypto industry, it was sort of sacrosanct that you don't come into the U.S. unless you're going to do all this compliance and solicit U.S. customers. Yeah, 
It's tough. I mean, look, like we've had some clients and potential clients confide in us that we make suggestions for the compliance program. Their question is always like, well, we don't think our competitors are doing this. So this is going to hurt us if we have to comply with these and no one else does. To that end, this does send a big message to the industry. I mean, Binance, like I said, decent win for them here. I think there's some positives to take from it, but it hurts. And they got lucky, basically. They experienced explosive growth that I don't think is available now to the rest of the industry. And that's really how they were able to weather this penalty. Otherwise, yeah, these regulators are here, they're coming, and they're not going to show any mercy. And I think most companies will get crippled by any violations that they may have. So I don't suggest a takeaway here to be that you don't need a compliance program. Believe me, I'm saying I explicitly espouse the opposite. But that said, I think it did end up working out for Binance in the end here. Well, now CZ is looking at, you said, what, 16-month prison sentence? Up, up to 18 months. And I'm sure DOJ will argue for the max to send the message. Frankly, I'm surprised at how low that is, given that other people who have failed to implement AML programs, be it for a bank, be it for cryptocurrency, I'm sure have faced more time. And yeah particularly how blatant the conduct was. There's no question as to his intent. He knew about the requirements and he said, we're not going to comply with them. And as a strategy, I mean, that's what it is. I think it's worth getting into some of these allegations here just to kind of set the table for everyone because those settlement agreements and the criminal information was in depth. So I can't imagine anyone wants to wade through those, but I did. I enjoyed it. So. You know, yeah. Well, like I said, carnage, the carnage. What? (laughs) Well, like I said, Binance prioritized growth over compliance right from the get go. They had a lot of amusing quotes included in the documents, one of which there was a compliance personnel that raised these issues up to senior leadership saying, hey, look, like we very obviously have sanctioned individuals operating on our platform. Here's a list of some of these customers I think we should block. And this is how we can do that. And they were told explicitly, and I quote, you should pay more attention to giving users better service and a better user experience, not further banning some users. So the message was clear. Yeah, you should be helping these guys. (laughs) We don't want to ban them. We want to foster their business. That's how it worked. I remember reading that in the original days, there was no KYC. You just literally put in an email address and you were good to go. That's all you needed. A single email address. There was no KYC at all. You didn't even have to tell them what your name was. Not only would they not verify it, but they didn't even care what it was. Just give us any email address. Doesn't matter. As long as it works, you can set up an account. And like I said, then they tried to put in some window dressing where you could still avoid KYC with what was called a tier one account. If you wanted to move to a tier two account, then we required some documents. That said, the tier one account still allowed you to withdraw per day, up to two Bitcoin in funds. That's like At its peak, that was $180,000 per day, per account. And if you needed more, just make another account, get another email, get a second account, transfer funds there, and withdraw from that account. And that's what users did. So no controls at all in that regard. There was no transaction monitoring at all. I think that's really one of the benefits that the cryptocurrency industry has. And we may even want to get into that a little bit later, but there are tools available that traditional finance can't utilize and transaction monitoring is really the key there. But that said, Binance had none of it. 
they were frequently processing funds from ransomware, from hacks, from darknet markets, criminal activities, things coming from all different types of mixing services, which are now sometimes sanctioned. We've seen that ourselves. We've done some investigations. We've looked into certain ransomware parties or otherwise where we were trying to trace crypto. And we found that most of the time, if not every time, some of it found its way through Binance at some point. And they didn't care. That was business to them. <laughs> that was a conscious decision by senior leadership. How big of their revenue was coming from the United States? I believe it's about a third of their revenue, which may or may not sound significant. You know, again, they were initially based in China, so they had a very large Asian contingent to their user base. But the U.S. was very big for them as well. And again, part of the whole knowing strategy, I mean, they were actively tracking the amount of U.S. users on that exchange throughout this whole period. They couldn't even say that we had no idea users were transacting here when it was a conscious strategy to make sure that that user base was as high as they could possibly get it. It's interesting. I mean, they were actively burying their heads in the sand. At some point, they did set up that U.S. exchange, Binance.us. And part of that was this phone compliance strategy where they could pretend that they were complying with U.S. laws, saying, hey, all of our U.S. users are based on this exchange. They've got a money transmitter license. They've got everything they need for that and leave the foreign exchange alone. That said, they still purposely tried to maintain their high value users on the main exchange because they were valuable to creating liquid markets on that exchange. So they were directing their customer service to help these users circumvent Binance's own controls. For example, one of the basic controls that they implemented was IP blocking. Now, that's very useful to have, and that is expected now by OFAC and other regulators, but it is pretty easy to get around it. Really, you just need a VPN. That's basically what the customer service was telling these users that were getting flagged for having US IP addresses, letting them know the reason you can't transact here is because of your IP address. And then hinting that, well, if you could do something about that, <laughs> we yeah. would unlock you. Yeah. Right. They would have a specific script that said, rather than, hey, you're trying to transact from the US, they would say, oh, our controls may have messed up and accidentally mischaracterized you as a US customer. If you could do something about that, <laughs> then you'll still be able to transact here. Going even further, some of their largest clients were corporate entities, say hedge funds or crypto funds like that. Many of them were based in the US and that was known to Binance. So Binance would help these entities set up offshore accounts, basically walk them through the process of setting up an account in the Cayman Islands, for example, and then say, hey, just change your registration to this entity and all will be good. And that's what they did. So even though they knew this company was ultimately owned by a U.S. company, Binance themselves helped them set up this fake shell company. It didn't matter. They buried their heads in the sand, and that was it, as long as they kept the money coming in. Right. Now, you mentioned that they didn't do any transaction monitoring. So other than having IP blocking technology, they didn't do any sort of monitoring for suspicious patterns or anything like that. In terms of nothing like that. Yeah, nothing like that. And have an IP block from the beginning? or It sounded like they were lawless from the beginning. And then eventually- They did not have it at the beginning. It was part of that window dressing campaign later on. Once they realized like, hey, we're getting a little too big to be ignored now. Government's going to start looking at us. Let's put in some easily circumvented controls. And IP blocking was one of them at that point. That was around 2019 or 2020 or so. Taking a step back, 
you said that there's an important message here for the crypto industry. What do you think, I mean, besides, hey, if you are lawless, ignore it, then get punished, pay the cost of doing business, your CEO goes to jail for, let's say, 18 months or 16 months. What impact is this going to have on the crypto industry? Here's a big one. Binance is a big piece of this, but there's been other issues, obviously, <laughs> as well. Yeah. At this point, customers want reputable company. Reputation matters and compliance is a big part of that. We've seen a lot of chaos over the last year or two where some of the biggest crypto companies have either gone under or been subject to issues like this. We've got FTX. FTX you know, is in bankruptcy now. The head of that company is now facing significant jail time. Celsius went bankrupt. That owner's facing jail time. BlockFi went bankrupt. All these major crypto companies have gone under and customers have lost their money because everyone was doing shady things. Everyone was faking compliance or just ignoring laws. And people lost a lot of money because of that. Seeing this in the crypto industry, I do believe customers really want to make sure that they can use a company that they can rely on, that has a good reputation and has these compliance controls in place so that this kind of chaos <laughs> doesn't happen anymore. Could you say that Binance really reflected the early wild, wild west days of the crypto industry and that what we're seeing now is sort of a quality raise, quality expectations, not only just with regard to compliance, but the whole industry and the experience that you can trust some of these people, like you may trust your bank to put your money in. Is that where we're going? Even though you still have a lot of fraud committed using cryptocurrency, and I want to throw out one other idea. Look, blockchain allows you to do certain things, to do audits, to track a lot of the movements here of money and other things. There's got to be some benefits to that industry knowledge, in a sense. Yeah, so a few things there. First, yes, I do think Binance, they were in the middle of the lawlessness. And like I said, that was a conscious business decision. It's no secret crypto started out with a questionable past being right. used on the dark net, trading drugs, all sorts of crazy things like that. That has since evolved, though. And I believe in some recent reports from Chainalysis or other types of crypto analytics companies, the volume of those illegal transactions is a very small fraction of what's going on in the blockchain right now. We are seeing much more use of it in traditional commerce, more or less, even to the point where a lot of major companies such as BlackRock, Fidelity, they're now filing for Bitcoin ETFs. And we'll probably see a few more of those types of financial products with other cryptocurrencies as well. So it's become mainstream. And then, yeah, to answer your next question there, like I mentioned earlier, there is tools available to the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry that's not available to traditional finance. Transaction monitoring is the big one. So the blockchain is a public ledger. At its core, it's just telling you person A owns this, person B holds this and whatever. If you want, you can track the entire path of a single Bitcoin throughout every wallet it's ever been in from its inception. So those tools can show you where the money's coming from. For traditional banks, if I make a deposit, they might ask me, hey, where did you get this money from? Like, oh, it's in my paycheck or whatever. And I'll just tell them that. But they have no way of knowing at the end of the day. They just know whatever I tell them. On the blockchain, it's all public. So if I wash these funds through a mixer, 
these exchanges will know that. If I got it from a party that's a known ransomware or cyber criminal or someone from the dark market, the exchange can see that. So those tools are extremely powerful and really, really helpful in making sure these companies stay in compliance with the BSA and other AML regulations. That's what I'm saying. Go back to the beginning days of this technology. The mm -hmm. public ledger idea was that you could track funds, you could track money, you could track your cryptocurrency in a ledger, and you can't go in and like erase an entry. It's there forever. For example, we had a case we worked on with ransomware, and we were able to track down where that was connected to, who it was connected right. to. Now, you pay somebody a whole bunch of cash, you can't track it, obviously wired funds and whatnot, but the FBI has gotten pretty sophisticated, for example, in tracking cryptocurrency and tracking it down and even recovering ransomware payments down the road. So there is that promise of the industry. What hasn't occurred, though, is I would call it a culture of compliance. But what you're saying is that consumers are going to demand it at some point. Yeah, we've hit that inflection point. No doubt. Like I said, crypto had some shady beginnings. Can't run from that. The industry has to embrace that. Early users embraced what they believed was anonymity, and that's what they wanted, and that's what attracted them to Bitcoin specifically. Ironically, it's not that anonymous, like we just explained. <laughs> it is a public ledger, and you can track all those funds pretty easily. But yeah, at this point, I think consumers are going to demand it. The contingent that wants that anonymity is much smaller than it previously was. And there's not many places for them to go anymore. We do see regulators cracking down on all sorts of exchanges that are doing shady things. There was just a recent action about a Russian exchange called Bitslato, I think it's called. But they got caught about a year or two ago, and now they're finally prosecuting the CEO. He was based in Russia, came to Miami for an event. I guess he thought he was still anonymous, and they grabbed him off the plane once he got here. So they're really prioritizing their focus on enforcement in the crypto industry. That is helping to clean up a lot of things. Well, the Justice but Department, uh, we know on their push on national security criminal prosecutions, for example, listed mm -hmm. cryptocurrency and the way sort of rogue nations and whatnot, North Korea, others have become sophisticated in using it, aside from the usual fraud and whatever, noncompliance, but there's a real reason for them to become even more adept at investigating it. And that's what I think ultimately is going to happen is that we're going to see more sophisticated investigations here. But the thing that just makes no sense to me is that the concept of compliance here these are not overwhelming compliance program mandates. To have an AML program and a KYC program right. means, yes, there may be a few customers that you can't deal with and you may, quote unquote, lose money by not dealing with a sanctions entity, but you wouldn't have to go through what Binance is going through and get a hand slap at the worst for deficiencies in a program, but at least you're trying. A good faith attempt to try to comply with an AML program. And you and I know that putting together one of those programs, it's not going to overwhelm the business. That's a really great point because I do think a lot of companies think compliance is expensive and it doesn't have to be. It's either expensive or obtrusive or some other issue with it that sometimes you need to drag these guys along kicking and screaming to get a good program in place. But that doesn't need to be the case. 
we always try here at the firm, and we really do pride ourselves on being a partner with the business. We do want to make sure that a compliance program can be built that fits into everyone's individual operations. And that's definitely possible. We saw one client once before, they did do their best to implement a KYC program, but it was very manual. They were using Excel spreadsheets. It was slow, slow being the biggest issue because customers were abandoning the exchange because they couldn't get KYC fast enough. We were able to help them put some automated tools in place where, okay, this process can be a day max, maybe. You can get a lot of these users onboarded. Anyone who's questionable, you could set them aside now for enhanced due diligence if necessary but get these people on the platform trading and then have that transaction monitoring in place so that if there are any issues flagged by that process, then you can address those as they pop up. Either stop them in real time or then figure out what to do if you do need to ask for additional verification or other information that's possible at that point as well. But the point of it was that it all fit in with the business's operations. And the biggest takeaway was that it improved the customer onboarding experience. So now it lowered the abandonment rate and they were actually getting more clients because of it. So yeah, believe it or not, compliance can sometimes be a really great business strategy if you do it right. Particularly when you have so many questionable entities out there offering services and exchange services and all that. I think we're also seeing some gravitation towards, let's say Coinbase, let's say a remediated Binance. Some of the companies that are going to realize that in the long run, they're going to make more money. Yeah. And I've got to give Coinbase credit there. I'm not recommending one platform over another. Coinbase is really just the biggest one now, but Kraken and Gemini both do good work as well. But Coinbase especially has prioritized compliance from the beginning, as far as I'm aware. And they've really done well to avoid a lot of the biggest issues. They're dealing with some securities issues now from the SEC, but it's more indicative of some of the ambiguous regulations from the SEC than it is from Coinbase's willful disobedience. Otherwise, I think they've really done a great job in terms of compliance. And the ability to do this in a cost-effective way, let's say you're a new crypto exchange starting out, whatever. You're, let's say, setting up in Dubai. There are ways to fashion it in a business-friendly way to make sure you're in compliance so you don't face these risks. And that's what we'd like to see more from the industry. And I think eventually that's where it's going to turn to because otherwise the industry will start to collapse. If you're going to be lawless, then that's where you're going to be. Yeah. And look, compliance doesn't need to be hard in the beginning. The DOJ is not expecting a startup to have the same compliance program that a company like Coinbase or whoever like Apple or Amazon has. There's different levels to that. And if you do it right, you can build a strong foundational program that doesn't break the bank and that doesn't impact business that then is able to grow with the operations and scale with everything as the company begins to take off. If you do it right and you do it from the beginning, it is really effective in the long run. Yeah. Well, Matt, thanks. Interesting discussion. Always good to talk to you and catch up on crypto. People want to get in touch with you. The best way to reach you is... You can always email me, mstankwitz at volkofflaw.com. I always include my email address in all my crypto posts, which I expect to do more of because it does seem like the market is starting to come back. You may be on the verge of a new bull run, so this is not financial advice, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will be What's doing Bitcoin more. Bitcoin up more to now? What's Bitcoin up to now? Is it up to 60? I think No, not that much, but I think it's at 44,000 right now. Just past 44,000 yeah. today. Well, I think it's going to keep going up for a while. I do too. 
Not financial advice. <laughs> yeah. I know some people tune in hoping for recommendations, but I'm not going to make it on the podcast. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> we don't want to go that far. All right, Matt, thanks so much. And if you want to get in touch with Matt, talk about compliance, AML requirements, what are the specific requirements, how you do KYC and do it in a business-friendly way, just reach out to Matt. And thanks again, Matt. It's always good to catch up with you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.